we come to Malachi, which is the last of the minor prophets. So the title of this message is Malachi's Monument of Mercy. And that's found in the first chapter of Malachi. We're going to read in Malachi chapter 1, verse 1. The burden of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, saith the Lord, yet ye say, wherein hast thou loved us? And the response here from God is this. Was not Esau Jacob's brother, saith the Lord? Yet I loved Jacob, and I hated Esau, and laid his mountains and his heritage waste for the dragons of the wilderness. Whereas Edom, that's another name for Esau, Edom saith, we are impoverished, but we will return and build the desolate places. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, they shall build, but I will throw down. And they shall call them the border of wickedness and the people against whom the Lord hath indignation forever. And your eyes shall see and ye shall say, the Lord will be magnified from the border of Israel. It's very important to understand what's going on historically. And I hope also that you'll see just how relevant it is to us today. Malachi is a transition where if you want to know the connection between Christianity, which is coming in about 400 years from the time of Malachi, uh, Judaism. It's about 1,500 years since Abraham. And I'm using Abraham because, in a sense, you know, that was sort of the beginning of what they know here is Judaism, you know, Abraham, and then years later comes Moses and the Mosaic Law. But it all begins with Abraham, and the Jews look back primarily to Abraham. And this is 50 to 100 years from the days of Haggai and Zechariah. So the temple has been rebuilt in this time. This is about 400 years before Jesus, and this is the last message from God prior to John the Baptist coming. And there's a lot in this minor prophet about John the Baptist. Doesn't call him by name, but it certainly refers to him. To see the background here, we know that there's a civil ruler over Jerusalem because it refers to the governor in chapter 1. It's very possible that Nehemiah was alive. You know, if you read the book of Nehemiah and Ezra, a lot of that overlaps, but there's no question that Nehemiah was around when Ezra was around. And one of the reasons that the commentators think that is because Nehemiah addresses in his book, some of the same problems that were going on, which was a mere formality of religion. They had cultural mixed marriages where the culture of the Jews was intermingling with the false worship culture of the nations around them. And that was strongly condemned by the Mosaic Law and strongly condemned by Nehemiah and strongly condemned by Malachi. Also, there was a failure to follow the law, and you see that in the form of the failure to tithe as addressed in Malachi, I think the third chapter. And these are all things that Nehemiah condemned. So it's thought that it's possible that Nehemiah and Malachi overlap. Nobody really knows who Malachi was, but obviously he was a prophet. And I love this quote from one of the commentators. Listen to this. Malachi is the transition link between the two great dispensations of redemption. The last note of that magnificent oratorio of revelation, whose wailing of sorrow and breathings of hope were soon to give place to that richer song, which should be not only of Moses, but also of the Lamb, and tell not only of Eden and Sinai, but of Calvary and heaven. I thought that was a beautiful overview of what Malachi is. So to get things moving in the right direction... What we've got here in the context of this first part of chapter 1 
is Malachi trying to set their minds to see the true God. They've got a problem in understanding who the true and living God is. Can we identify with that today where very few of God's children understand anything about the true and living, sovereign, loving God whose heart is revealed in the Word of God? It's revealed to all of God's children. But the problem is people put their spin on it and you begin to diminish and lose sight of the true and living God. So Malachi gives a wonderful description of life and worship at the end of the Old Testament era, about 400 years before Jesus. He describes a clueless people when it comes to God and to worship. They were clueless. I'm not saying they weren't worshiping. They were, but they were going through the motions. They were clueless about who God really was and what He expected. And they asked many questions. Now, a lot of those are rhetorical where the Lord says, they say this, but He's, he's telling us what was in the minds of the people. Why they ask these questions like, How has God loved us? You know, he says, I have loved you. That's the very first thing out of the gate. I have loved you, but you say, wherein has God loved us? You know, what do you mean God has loved us? So there was an accusatory mentality or attitude towards God. That's around today. You understand? It can be in the form of when tragedy strikes and people say, well, I don't know what God is trying to teach me here. as if God has committed the tragedy that's occurred, or if they get into big trouble because of their sin, as we often is, as often is the case, they'll say, well, God's teaching me something here. That, that is no different than saying, you know, how does God love me? They don't understand how God loves them, you see? Because when you get into a bad situation because of sin you have committed, God is not to be blamed for that. Now, when you get into tragic situations and tragedy and trials that, that occur, There's no question that the true heart of God is to be with His children through those things. But many of God's children say, you know, why is God doing this to me? When most of the time He's not even doing it. That's a two-faced God. He said, well, I'm going to cause you all this trouble so I can show you how much I love you. That's a terrible father that would do that. Did you know that? I mean, could you see me going home to my kids and standing over there, you know, like on the edge of a you know, of a hill or something and just like, hey, come here, guys, I want to show y'all something. And they get to the edge of the hill and I push them off the hill so I can go down to the bottom and help them feel better. That doesn't make any sense, does it? And that's the farthest thing from God. And these people don't understand God. And many of God's children today, I'd say the great majority, don't understand the heart of God. But the Lord's going to explain it to them. And it, it has everything to do with election, with His sovereign choosing of those that he loves. Malachi describes a clueless people when it comes to God and the heart of God. And they ask many questions. The first question they ask is, God, how have you loved us? You say you love us, but how have you loved us? You're not giving us the things that we want. But here's some of the other questions that they ask. How have we despised the name of the Lord? Because the Lord says you're doing all these things. How have we polluted the table of the Lord? How have we wearied the Lord with our words? In one point in Malachi, God says to return to me. And the people say, return? Why? Did we ever leave him? You know, wherein shall we return? What does he mean? They don't have a clue. And then one of the last questions is, how have we spoken against God harshly? You see all these things they were doing? If you're asking that many questions about God and and what I'm doing wrong, it means you're clueless. They are absolutely clueless about God. So the first question, which is, in many ways, the most important one, because if we don't establish the true nature, the true heart of God, then how can we understand anything else about our lives or about how God operates? 
God says, I love you. He says, I love my people. I love you. And they say, but, you know, things aren't going exactly like I want. I don't have the Corvette and I don't have the mansion on the hill and I don't have the money in the bank that I want. And I don't have the friends that I want or the boyfriend that I want or the girlfriend that I want or what. So really, God, if you say you love us, you know, why don't I have all those things? That's what they're saying. How has God loved us? Like many say today, you know what God does? He points them to his sovereignty. One of the things I think that we have a hard time getting through our minds is this. You know, we get, we get so caught up in the here and now, as we often say, you know, the nasty now and now, we lose sight of the sweet by and by that's coming. So we get so caught up in the timely things that we want that we forget the eternal things are the most important things. For example, God has saved you. He loves you so much that he has spared you and saved you from burning in the lake of fire for eternity and paying for your sins. If that's the only thing that he ever did for you and me, from an eternal standpoint and a timely standpoint, is that not enough? You're not going to burn. You're not going to bake in hell with the devil running around or screaming around and his angels screaming around and weeping and gnashing of teeth. You're not going to burn. So when you get that understanding in your heart, and it's more than just you're not going to burn. It's the Lord said in Isaiah, the 40th chapter, comfort ye, comfort ye, my people. Get, they have been rewarded double for all of their sins. It's not just that you've been lifted out of hell and you're not going to burn in the lake of fire, but you're going to be in the presence of God for eternity. That's the reality right there. All of this stuff that's going on around us, yes, that hurts at times and it's difficult at times, but that's just a temporary existence. The true reality is eternal. And the Lord said, whenever I come back, the things that are temporary, He said, I'm going to cause them to burn up and disappear. They're going to dissipate. They're going to dissolve. And the things that are eternal is what you will see at that point. Heaven, mansions in heaven, your loved ones, God's people, an untold number, most importantly, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You're going to see them. So when you get that understanding in your heart, when that hits your heart, and it's not just a concept, it's not just a theory, and not just some kind of theology teaching, when you understand God has done that for you, you wind up not asking for much more. You've spared me from burning in hell and paying for my sins. So the mansion on the hill is not really that important. And besides, if you were praying for it and you don't have it, it probably means God knew that you didn't need it in the first place or the Corvette or the other things. Boyfriend, girlfriend, you know, fill in the blank. You say, well, God's letting me down because I don't have this or I don't have that. Actually, you're letting God down because you don't understand who God is. See, understand the nature of God. And not only that, think about this. He didn't have to tell us what he did in saving us from our sins. For 2,000 years, the message that has taken over the world is that God has saved us from our sins. He could have just kept it quiet and kept it in a corner. And just when you die and you get to heaven, you go through life oblivious, wondering, what's wrong with me? What's wrong with the world? Why are things not going my way? And then you wake up in heaven when you die. The Lord says, hey, I had it all worked out for you. I saved you from your sins. Welcome to heaven. But as good old Baptists and as children of God, Christians, we understand the message of salvation now. That's so important. I tell you, when I get off base and I start drifting and I start wondering and I start doubting, I come back to the sovereignty of God. I come back to the reality of how much God loves me, that he sent his son to die for me, and that I'm not going to be baking in the lake of fire for eternity. And even now, when I have difficulties, I can look to that fact, to that knowledge, and it comforts me to get through difficult times. How has God loved us? He said, was not Esau Jacob's brother? 
That's an interesting place to go, isn't it? He goes back and he talks about twin boys, Jacob and Esau. And to make the point about how much he loves Israel, he says, was not Esau Jacob's brother? Yet I love Jacob and I hated Esau. Now this is part of the character of God that is hated by many of God's children because they don't understand it. Now look, from a practical standpoint, think about this. You know, I'm married to Sister Tracy and I love her more than any woman in the world. But I don't hate all other women. You get that? Okay, I don't hate all other women. I don't love them like I love my wife, you see, because I'm in covenant with her. Okay, now God, when you think about the Lord, it's a little bit different. The Lord loves his people. And you say, well, isn't this just applying to Israel? We're going to go to Romans 9 here in just a minute where it applies to all of God's children. So God loves his children. And by placing his love on his covenant children, he hates all others. He hated Esau. I mean, think about it. If you know anything about Esau, what was there to love about Esau? What was there to love? Nothing. He sold his birthright. He gave up his blessing. I mean, he was swindled out of his blessing. He was going to kill his brother. He's terrible. We say, well, Jacob was just a good boy, right? Uh-uh. What was there to love about Jacob? In his nature, absolutely nothing. So the playing field is set. Jacob was just as bad as Esau. Esau was just as bad as Jacob. But the Lord said, you want to know how I've loved you? I love Jacob. And I hated Esau. You see, the hatred of God is just as much part of his character. He can't be the God that he says he is if he doesn't have hatred for the wicked and for sin. But people get hung up on that. You know why? Because they don't see the true heart and character of God. God hates the wicked. It says that he's angry with the wicked every day. That ought to make us relax a little bit when it comes to the wicked things that are going on in the world. The Lord doesn't overlook anything, and he's angry with the wicked every day. Thank goodness as his children, he's not angry at us like he's angry at the wicked, but he will chasten us like a father chastens his children. So God uses this example to demonstrate his love. He says, don't you remember Jacob? I love Jacob, but I hated Esau. Now some of the commentators, the ones that don't understand the heart of God say, well, that just means that like I described about, I don't hate other women, but I love Sister Tracy in covenant, see? And they say, well, that just means he just loved Esau less. There's a problem with that. The Word of God doesn't teach that, number one. Romans, the ninth chapter, speaks of how he doesn't love less. He hates Esau. He hates the wicked. And if you understand depravity, you won't ever have a problem with that. You know, God had every right to hate you and to hate me. He has every right to hate all of mankind. You say, why? That's kind of harsh, Brother Tim. There's some good people out there. If there's any good people out there, it's because God has made them good. And if there's any bad people out there, guess what? It's not because God made them bad. It's because Adam made them bad, see? You know, God made a perfect world with a perfect creation, perfect creatures in it, innocent Adam and innocent Eve. And what do they do? They mess it up and they fall into sin. And so God, why would he be obligated to say, well, you know, I'm going to love these. He's not obligated to love anybody. But because he loves his son, he obligated himself to love a people that you can't even number. That's the beauty about believing what the Word of God teaches. Out in the religious world today, you can pretty much number the people of God. 
You can get a number because you can see where the missionary has gone. You can see where the Bible Tract Society has gone. You can kind of trace it through the years. And you can get a pretty solid number about, well, they went here, they went here, they went throughout the years, they went to these places. You can come up with a number. The problem is that does not work with the Scripture because the Lord says, I've got a people out of every kindred. That means every family on the face of the earth that has ever existed had at least one child of God in it. He says every kindred, every family. So before... There was even a gospel to preach. Among all of those different nations, God had at least one in every family. Out of every kindred, out of every tribe, out of every tongue, out of every nation. See, if you follow the modern thinking about the limited power and ability of God, then you don't understand the the heart of God. God's heart reaches to every single family that's ever existed on the planet. Now, in some of those families, I'm certain there's more than one child of God. But there's at least one because he said every kindred, every family. And what was the original basic building block of government and the world? It was family. It's glorious to think about those things. This is the heart of God. What did God do? He reached down into a family and he looked into the womb and he chose Jacob. Now, it does say over in Romans, the ninth chapter, you can go ahead and turn there if you want to. In Romans, the ninth chapter, it says before the boys, the twins even did any good or evil. He didn't look and say, oh, well, Jacob's going to be such a good boy because we know that's not the case. He was a terrible boy. He was a terrible man. And but for the grace of God saving him and touching him, he would have remained as a reprobate just like his brother Esau. But it says in Romans 9, verse 9, For this is the word of promise. At this time will I come and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one, even by our father Isaac. Now watch the parenthesis. For the children, that's Jacob and Esau, being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil. See, this choosing was not based on the work of good or evil of Jacob and Esau, but that the purpose of God according to election might stand. Not of works, but of him, that's God, that calleth. It was said unto her, and you can read that in the book of Genesis, the elder shall serve the younger. As it is written, book of Malachi, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. Now, the apostle Paul presumes the question here. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Was it unrighteous for God to pass over Esau and not touch him, not harm him, not do anything to him and choose Jacob? Listen, It's no more unrighteous for God to do that than it is for a mother and a father to go into an orphanage and adopt a child. As a matter of fact, it's way more righteous for God to do what he did because he had no obligation to do that other than what he obligated himself to. Nobody would say, well, it's it's bad when a mother and a father go and adopt. They just adopted that one child out of those hundred there. That's a shame. Nobody says that. And we don't even afford God that luxury. Oh, it's just not fair for God to choose Jacob over Esau. It wasn't fair for God's son to die because he's perfect, see? So we're not talking about fairness. We're talking about Malachi's monument to mercy. It was the mercy of God to choose Jacob over Esau. He could have just said, I'm not choosing anybody. And God would have been fair, right, and just to do that. But in mercy, don't ever forget that. Mercy is being spared from the lake of fire. Mercy is being spared from paying for your sins. Mercy is being spared from what you deserve. And God passed over Esau, didn't harm him, didn't touch him, left him just like his forefather Adam had left him, had brought him into the world many, many generations down. And he chose Jacob. 
You see, that makes all the difference. That's the sovereignty of God. And the people of Israel were saying, how have you loved us, Lord? The Lord said, I loved you because I chose Jacob and I just left Esau alone. And for God to be the God that he says he is. You see, the inverse of God's love is hatred of evil, wickedness, and wicked men and women. That's the only way that God can dole out judgment one day on the wicked at the end of time. It's because not only does he love, but his love carries the characteristic of he must hate those things that are against him. Jacob was against him until what? He chose him. And child of grace, you are against God until God chose you in the covenant before the foundation of the world, and then he calls you to him by his grace. Case in point would be the apostle Paul. He was chosen in the covenant of redemption before the foundation of the world, but he was going around killing Christians before he was born again. You see that? And somebody would say, how could God choose somebody like that? You know, look in the mirror and say, how could God choose me? The Lord through the prophet is trying to emphasize to his people, you ask of me how I love you? He said, I love you in covenant. And covenant is more than a feeling, isn't it? It's action. It's love in action. Now, don't feel sorry for Esau. Esau was wicked. He was mean. He was corrupt. He wanted to murder his brother. If you feel sorry for Esau, you're feeling sorry for a murderer because he had murder in his heart for his brother. Not only that, the Edomites, which descended from Esau, they were constantly cheering and rooting for the destruction of Jacob's descendants. Psalm 137 and 7 says, Remember, O Lord, the children of Edom in the day of Jerusalem, when Jerusalem was attacked. And they said, raise it, raise it. That's R-A-S-E, which means level it, destroy it. Raise it, raise it, even to the foundation thereof. One of the reasons that he pronounced judgment was because whenever Jerusalem was destroyed, the Edomites were standing by going, there goes a Jew, there goes an Israelite, catch him. Oh, tear it down, tear it down, destroy it. They were cheering on the sidelines for the destruction of Jerusalem. And that does not make God happy. And he says, remember the day where they stood by and said, raise it, raise it, raise God's city, destroy God's city. He said, God hates Esau. And we see in the book of Romans, the apostle Paul tells us clearly that he's speaking about God's chosen children in the covenant of grace and the wicked of the world. Don't ever accuse God of being unfair. He's not unfair. As I said, it was unfair for his son to have to die for our sins. Now, the Israelites, the Lord is trying to emphasize to them, you are a monument to mercy. Now think about it. He goes on and he says, If the Edomites decide to build back, he said, I'll destroy them again. Y'all catch that in in the first chapter there, Malachi? He says, if they say, let's build back our nation or our city or whatever, the Lord says they can build it back, but I'll tear it down. He's pointing out to them how he hated them. Israel, I love only you as a nation in the Old Testament. And if Esau tries to build back, I'll just destroy him again as a nation. Now in the New Testament, he takes it to another level. God only loves his covenant people. And he hates all others. And he'll judge all others. But the Lord points to them. He said, if Esau tries to build back, I'll tear it down again. And then you will see for sure, you're still here. You're still in existence. And you'll see just how much I love you. As a matter of fact, their very presence back in the Holy Land, back in that area, back in the Promised Land, their presence back there was a testimony to the love of God. Because you remember, who sent them into captivity for disobedience? It was their loving God who was tired of them disobeying, and so He sends them off into captivity, and now they're back. That's a testament to the love of God. And they had lost sight of that. 
We're prone to do that. They lost sight of how much God loved them. I mean, think about it. They were walking around on the streets of Jerusalem that had been decimated, and it was a habitation for lions and bears and coyotes and jackals. And now it's inhabited again. They have a market. They have schools. They have businesses. They have the temple built back. And they just could not get in their minds the heart of God. The fact that they were walking around in Jerusalem was a, was a testimony to the heart of God towards them. They were there and not in Babylon. But the Lord said, you want to see my heart? Look where you are. And over there in Edom, if they build back, I'll just destroy them again. You ever ask the Lord, you know, like the old song, I think it's from the 80s, what have you done for me lately? <laughs> Don't ask the Lord stuff like that. Lord, what have you done for me lately? You're just not answering my prayers or whatever. Look back to the cross and look what he did for you. That's enough. On one hand, if you look at the cross like that, you might put your hand above your mouth like Job did and never ask him for anything again. Lord, it's enough. You saved me from hell. You spared me from the lake of fire. That's enough. But our God is so good. You know, it's kind of like as a parent, I provide a roof over the kid's head and I provide them a bed and I provide them a room and I provide them this and I provide them that. If you start looking at that and you think about, well, that's all my father, my mother, they've done this for me. What more could you ask for? I remember when it hit me when I was 12 or 13 years old and I'd been working on the farm for another year. Some of that was involuntary. You know, when dad, seven or eight years old, mom says it wasn't that age, but I'm telling you it was that age. He made for me a sawed down mop handle so that I could wash out the drinkers, you know, because the big one was too big. Got pictures. But, you know, seven or eight years old, nine or 10 years old, you know, it was just kind of a drag, you know. But as I got older, 12, 13, 14 years old, and I began to realize how important work ethic was. And I began to think about, you know, my dad's paying me to work for him. He actually paid me. He didn't have to do that. I'm one of his children. He could have just said, go do it, son. But he's paying me. And I'm thinking, you know, I'm kind of a dead end. Because here I am fixing the fence, washing drinkers or whatever. I'm not really making him any money on this farm. He's just throwing money down a hole towards me. Hopefully I was doing what I was supposed to be doing. Probably not doing it very well. But that hit me at one point. I thought, you know, I want to work harder. I want to be something that he can be proud of. I want to do a job that makes him proud. He's paying me. He doesn't have to pay me. So here's the point. You know, food, shelter, clothing. I mean, those are just kind of minimum type things. Like, you know, they're expected. But as parents, don't we do more? Don't we want to bless our children with various things? And children, you ought to keep in mind what is doing more than just, you know, the bare minimum of food, shelter, and clothing. You know, God is infinitely better than me as a parent or any of of us as parents. And He is such a good God that He doesn't just give you the bare minimum of delivering you. It's weird to even say bare minimum because how can being spared from the lake of fire and being in heaven with the Lord, it's not a bare minimum. It's everything, you see? But God is so good to us that in addition to sparing us from the lake of fire and lifting us up to mansions in heaven to be with Christ forever, here and now, He still doles out blessings to us as a good, loving father. The fact that they were walking around on the streets of Jerusalem was evidence of that, that he was a good, loving father. He'd chosen them. They had fallen away from their understanding of God. They could have been in Babylon, locked up in a prison. So I think we all lose sight of what God has done for us. They said, how do you love us, Lord? The Lord said, look at my covenant. Look at what I did for you. I chose you. I could have chose Esau, but I chose you. 
And in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul says, look at the covenant. Look at the election of God. Of all people, the Apostle Paul, I believe, understood that because he's the one that did kill Christians and put them in jail and testify to their death like Stephen, the martyr. You know, and here's Paul saying, the only hope I've got, I don't have good works to weigh up and say, this is why the Lord chose me or this is why the Lord favored me. He didn't have any good works to show that. But he could look to the covenant. Amen? Look to the covenant. How does the Lord love you? He chose you. You say, I just don't know if I'm getting from the Lord what I need to get. You've already got it. You got it when He died on the cross and resurrected and you're spared from paying for your sins on the lake of fire and you're going to be with Jesus forever in the eternal reality and you'll have no more troubles, trials, problems, or issues and you'll be with all of the family of God and you'll meet at least one person out of every kindred that is ever, every family that's ever been on the face of the earth. But I think some of the families obviously will have many, many, many of God's children. So try to relax. Try to relax a little bit and think about what you're asking God or asking Him for. He loves you. He's your heavenly Father. He's chosen you in covenant. And He will dole out blessings to you. But if you're asking for the mansion and the Corvette and the extra money and all that type of stuff, you know, you might want to second, take a second look at that. He may do that for you. It may be a blessing for you if that's what's best for you. You know, the best thing you could tag on any prayer that you pray, and you say, Lord, I'm asking you, would you bless me in this way or bless me in that way? Always tag this onto it and you'll be fine. Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will, Lord. If you always tag that on there, then you'll be fine. Whether you're asking for the mansion or the Corvette or the monies or the houses or lands or whatever it may be, just say, nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. It's the same prayer that his son prayed. Oh, the Lord loves you. He loves you. He sent his son to die for you. He chose you like he chose Jacob. He loves you. And yet we get so caught up in the mundane and the day-to-day and what I have and what I don't have and what I wish I had and all of these things. And we just need to come back like the Lord brought their minds back over here. Look at the covenant. Look what I've done for you. Look where you are. You and we're all monuments to the mercy of God. So let's live our lives in a way that demonstrates that.